Well, there was a young boy who was standing in the foyer of his church, and he was staring up at this large bronze plaque that was there, and it had American flags on either side. And the pastor could see this little boy just studying this plaque for quite some time, and so he walked over and he said, son, do you know what you're looking at? And the little boy shook his head no, he didn't know what it was, and, and the pastor said, well, son, these are the names of all the people in our church who have died in the service. And this... This little boy's eyes got really wide, and he said, was it the 9.15 or the 11 (laughs) o'clock? Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at a list of names, and like this little boy thought, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what these names mean. And as we turn in our Bible today to chapters 11 and 12 in the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to see again is another long list of names. And as you look at a couple of chapters like this, reading through this may seem about as interesting as reading through one of the old phone books where you just saw name after name. And that's really what we're doing this morning because this is like the phone book for Nehemiah's day because in chapter 11, it's a list of the names of people who lived in the city of Jerusalem. And when we get to chapter 12, it's a list of the names of those who returned with Zerubbabel in the first wave as they went back to rebuild the temple in the city. And all of these people are long gone. They're, they, they're, they're dead, they're, they're gone, and what a chapter like this tells us is they're not forgotten. Because God has recorded names like this to tell us that he knows who each of these people were, and he knows what each of these people did to serve him. So as you look at a list of names like this, you can write Hebrews 6.10 in the margin of your Bible because Hebrews 6.10 tells us, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. This list of names reminds us God knows each of us and he sees what we do. So as we look at these chapters today, I want you to remember that. As we begin in chapter 11 today, what we're really doing is going back to Nehemiah chapter 7. Because in Nehemiah 7, 4, what it said there is, Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. You'll recall that in Nehemiah chapter 7, we saw the walls of the city uh, were being rebuilt. You had the rubble of the ruins of the city. The trash and rubble had to be carried out. The, The walls had to be put back up. And it wasn't just the the physical rubble that had to be carried away. The garbage that was being cleared out of the city was not just the old stones, but it was the sins of the past. That's what Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10 were about, as we saw the people were, were recommitting their lives to the Lord as they were renewing the covenant with God. And having had the spiritual area of their lives rebuilt, we now come back to the rebuilding of the population. So I invite you to look with me now as we begin in Nehemiah chapter 11, Verses 1 through 2. It says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, if you watch the news much, you'll find that people today are fighting about who gets to live in Jerusalem. People want to live there. They want to control that city. But as we look here in Nehemiah's day, people were not that excited about living there. To to move into the city meant you had to leave where you were. You had to leave your, your home. You had to leave your family and friends. 
You had to leave fields if you were out in an area where you could, pop, where you could uh, plant and, and harvest and take care of yourself. And moving into the city meant sacrifice because there, were, there was limited housing. The homes had not been built. What was available was not much, and it was sky-high prices. There were not a lot of economic opportunity in the city, so there's sacrifice to move into the city. And, and what we find here is there are some that had to be drafted. They didn't want to willingly go. Now, we saw in chapter 10 where the people had promised not to neglect the house of their God, as well as that they had committed to tithe the produce of the land. And we talked about what the tithe was, where you gave 10% of what you had. And what we find here is the people are now tithing the population. We're told that one out of every 10 is being chosen to move into Jerusalem. Now, I'm, I'm sure that some who were chosen had been happy with where they had lived, but now they were faced with having to move out of their comfort zone and into this new situation. As you think about the people making this move, I want you to ask yourself, how many of us would be willing to make a change like this? If an opportunity were presented to you for the sake of the kingdom, where one out of every ten of us had to do something, how many of us would be first in line? Or would others of us say, you know, I really like things the way they are? There are times that God will ask us to make a change that is moving us out of our comfort zone. Sometimes there are smaller things, unlike a, a move out of one place to a new city. Uh, we talked about some of the changes maybe God is wanting you to make last week where you look at your, your life and the priorities and are there changes that need to be made in your calendar or your checkbook. Other times what God does is he moves us out of our comfort zone in a short-term opportunity. It could be going on a short-term mission trip or it could be wherever you find yourself at school or work or the homes in which you live, there's an opportunity to share your faith and do you step out of your comfort zone and respond to what God is asking or do those times come along where we say, you know, God, this doesn't really match my plan. You ever told God that? This is not matching my plan? Somebody once said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? <laughs> but when it comes to God and his plans for his people, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven tells us this. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And when we read that they're drawing lots here according to God's plan, we can say, well, that's kind of chance, isn't it? I mean, you know, that's like drawing straws to see who gets the short one. But when it comes to God being involved, Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. We don't always understand how God works. We don't under, always understand what God is doing. But we can trust him in it because the Bible promises that ultimately it will bring about good. Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when it comes to those who moved into the city, I want you to notice that not everybody had to be drafted. There were many who volunteered, including the leaders of the city. We read in verse 1 that Nehemiah and the other leaders were already living there. We've seen all throughout this series in Nehemiah that he's a man who, who leads by example. It's been said that the speed of the leader is the speed of the team. And Nehemiah is one of these guys that is always, by example, doing these things. In verse 2, we see that some of the people also volunteer, not just the leaders. And the word that's used here, this Hebrew word means to impel. 
to incite from within. And inherent to this word is the idea of inner generosity and willingness. Uh, we find this word used in places in the Old Testament, like Exodus thirty-five twenty-nine. There it says the Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring materials for the work of the Lord, which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done, brought a free will offering to the Lord. As we talked about last time, giving to God is not just our material possessions. It's, it's all of our time. It's all of our talent. It's, it's everything that we are. And this is what we see here. The people literally put their lives in the offering plate. They say to God, we're not just giving the materials needed, but we're giving our families. We're making a move. We're going where you want us to be. And, and this is the same Hebrew word that's used here in Nehemiah 11.2 as the passage I just read out of Exodus. As you think in terms of of doing God's work, many of you here do it. I talked last week with great thankfulness about all the many ways that that many of you here at Wayside serve and how you support the work of the ministry. As you think about our church and and all that it is, I want to uh, share a poem with you this morning. It's called, This is My Church. And this poem says, This is my church. It's composed of people like me. We make it what it is. It says, I I want to stand as a signpost to sinners and a light to the path of pilgrims, leading them to goodness, truth, and beauty. It will be if I am. This is my church. It will be friendly if I am. Its pews will be filled if I help to fill them. It will do great work if I work. It will be a church of loyalty and love or fearlessness and faith if I, who make it what it is, am filled with these. Therefore, I dedicate myself to this task of being what I want my church to be. What do you want Wayside Chapel to be? As you think about our church, I want you to ask yourself, what do you want this church to be like? And then ask yourself, are you willing to help it to be that way? If, if you see something that is not the way you like or the way it should be, if you think we can be doing better in a, in a particular area, do you stew about it or do you step up to stand in the gap and serve and help the church become what you think it should be? I want you to ask yourself, if everyone here served and supported Wayside Chapel the way that you do, what would our church look like? Would we have to add more seats or would we have to shut the doors of this church? We just saw here in Nehemiah's day how people were willing to serve, how they were willing to step up, but there was always a need for more to help, which is why they had to draft some people. In Romans 12, 1, we're told, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It it says to present your bodies not to have them drawn out of a, a, a basket, a lot, or something to, to draft you. Think of the story of a commander during World War II. He was with his group of men, and he said, guys, there is this mission that we need to go on. It's dangerous. Many uh, possibly will be captured or killed in this mission. I want you to know the risk. But I, instead of assigning you to the job, I'm, I'm going to ask for volunteers. And so then he turned his back on the group and he said, if any man is willing to volunteer for this mission, would you step forward one step? And he gave it a few moments. 
And then he turned around and he was surprised to see that his troops were all still in a single line. And he said, guys, look, I, I know I told you it's dangerous. It could even cause your death. He said, but I have to tell you, frankly, I'm disappointed that not a single man would be willing to volunteer for this mission. And at that point, the sergeant tapped the captain on the shoulder and he said, sir, every single man stepped forward. The entire line had stepped forward. And this is what God wants from us. God is not looking for a few individuals. He's not looking for 10% of our church to be involved. He's looking for every single one of us as believers in Christ to be involved in the work that God is doing. As you read 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10, it says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You see, as Christians... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what the Bible says is God has given to you a spiritual gift, a unique ability, a unique talent that is to be used for God's work. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 14 through 18, for the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, I am not a hand, therefore I'm not a part of a body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed each of his members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm not that important to the ministry, Whatever the gift is that God has given me uh, isn't that important to this body. You're wrong. Because what Corinthians tells us is God has placed you specifically in a local body, in a church, for the purpose of using your gifts. Some of you are visiting this morning from other churches. You were in town for Thanksgiving. And when you go home to your local church, the place where you worship back in other states, God is saying you have a place to serve in your church. And if you're here as a part of Wayside Chapel, God says, I've given you a place that you're to be serving here because you have a unique gift that is needed. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 11, we see how the different people had different parts to play. Now, I'm not going to go through and read two chapters of hard names uh, because you guys would all go to sleep on me. Uh, So what I want to do is summarize what we see here Beginning in verse 9, what it tells us is the people that are mentioned there are those who were in charge of the city. And then when you get to verses 10 and 11, it tells about those who oversaw the house of God. And in our church, this would be like those who are elders in our body, the leaders. It would be the men and women who serve on the various leadership teams in our church. When we get to verses 12 through 13, it mentions those who were devoted to doing the work of the house of God, which in our context includes those who serve in all of the ministries. Those of you who serve in the children's and the students and the, the college and singles and the various places, this, this is inclusive of all who are involved in this. Verse 14 is a list of the valiant warriors. And I think in terms of the prayer warriors of our church, those who stand up here at the end of the service to pray with you, those who are part of the prayer teams, those who meet on Monday during our times of prayer. These are the unseen people that are supporting and and, and allowing the work of ministry to happen here. It's been said that if there are prayerless pews, then there's no power in the pulpit in the church, and that's true. Those of you who are are prayer warriors are, are akin to what we're reading about here. 
Verses 15 through 16 tell us about those who maintain the outside work of the temple. And here this would include those who help with the planning, the weeding, the care of our campuses. Last week I showed you pictures of the workday at Stone Oak. If you've ever walked through the courtyard to the little prayer garden to the side, I know many of you take pictures during the various uh, Christmas and Easter and various times. I see the, the beautiful family pictures that are posted on Facebook. We have a team of volunteers led by Peggy and Rosemary and others who serve and give of their time to maintain areas like that. There are others that, that are here at Wayside that restock the classrooms. Uh, when you serve over in the children's area, you know the supplies are always there. You know that the resource boxes are there. The crafts and various things are ready for you. And we have a team of volunteers who do that. And we have a, a lady who comes in and, and cleans during the week. Sherry comes in and sanitizes every classroom after every time it's used. All the toys are individually cleaned. The books are wiped down. The, the rooms are sanitized. So as parents... If you're worried about your kids, you know, getting some kind of a germ or something when things are going around, those rooms are cleaned constantly. And as Sherry goes through those rooms, she's not only cleaning, but she's praying individually for the kids that are in those rooms. She prays for the volunteers and the teachers who teach in those rooms as she's doing that job. The seats. Uh, after communion today, there are going to be cups and all the little holders around you, and there are people who will come through and clean the sanctuary, and they restock the pens and the, the welcome cards and the various things. These are volunteers who come in during the week and, and you know equip and clean areas like this that you never see. It, it says that there are, there, there are others. I think of our facilities team. When I got here early this morning, Britt Jenkins, our facilities director, was walking the parking lot carrying a trash bag, picking up trash and making sure the facilities you know, were ready for everybody to arrive. You have Armando Sanchez and Bobby Cubios. Uh, they'll put on leaf blowers and blow the leaves away from all the doors, and they, they set up and equip the rooms. I tell these guys that there are ministers of first impression, these are the men who, who set the table for when you first drive into the parking lot. You see that the facilities are well-maintained as you walk the halls, as you go into a classroom. The tables, chairs, uh, beverages are there. Uh, you go into the restrooms and they're clean. These are things that these people are doing that are setting uh, the table so that when you walk in here, you don't have any distractions uh, you're not thinking about the facilities. These are very important jobs that we're reading about were happening in the days of Nehemiah and in our day in a little different context, the same thing happens. We read about the worship ministers here in the list, and these are the people that you see who lead us from the platform, the men and women who share their vocal talents and their skills in playing instruments. And it's not just the people you see on a platform. It's the people who are in the Sunday school classes, the adult Bible fellowships, where there are teams who lead you in worship. It happens with our students leading other students in worship. It happens in our children's ministry, or there are people who are part of the praise and prayer teams that lead our kids and begin to teach them how to worship. And so as you think in terms of these lists, they, I want you to think in terms of, of those around you. In verse 19, we're told that there are those who guarded God's house. We have ushers and greeters who meet you at the door. We have the parking posse that are out there who help you find a parking place. We have uniformed police officers that you see who walk around and protect the property. 
uh, while they're here. Uh, these are those who are like the, guard, the uh, verse 19 that are guarding God's house. We see in verses 21 through 22, there are those who provided for and ministered in God's house. This could include our pastors, our directors, the administrative assistants who keep the ministries running, uh, those who are overseeing the, the volunteers and the others here at our church. We see in verses 23 through 24 that there is a list of those who handled the foreign affairs of the city. A parallel list could be those who are part of our missions team, those who go on mission trips, others who connect with community leaders as you serve. Uh, this is what you do as you reach out at your base where you're stationed, as you uh, serve in your school, as you come alongside people you work with, as you stand as an ambassador representing God. The Bible tells us our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, we're all passing through, and so we represent God in the places that he has us. As you read through this list of names, what you see is it took a variety of people doing a variety of jobs for the ministry to take place in Nehemiah's day and in our day. Now, sometimes as we serve, we may wonder, uh, does anybody even know me? Does my work even matter? If that's how you're feeling this morning, I want you to ask Akabub or Talmud. And you may say, well, who are these guys? Well, they're right there in verse 19, along with another 172 unnamed servants who watched the gates. These guys are people that when we're reading through a long list of names like this, we may go into autopilot and we just skim right over them and we don't even see them. We don't even think about them. But God knows who they are. And as you're serving here, you may say, well, people just walk right by me and they don't even know me. They don't even know my name. They don't really think about what I'm doing. But God knows you and God knows what you're doing. When we take communion at the end of this service, there was a group of men who were here at 6.30 this morning preparing the elements for you. Very few people know who they were or what they did, but they were here serving. And even though you didn't see them, God saw them. God saw the work that they were doing. And as I reminded you in the beginning in Hebrews 6.10, it tells us, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and having ministered and still in ministering to the saints. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, Roger, I would love to serve God. But I made a mess of my life. And if you knew about me, you knew my background, if people around me knew who I was, there wouldn't be a chance that I would have an opportunity to serve. Now, there are areas that we definitely make sure that we check backgrounds. If you serve in any of our children's areas, you have to fill out a background check. We go through and we check references. We check backgrounds. There are areas that, that we have to make safeguards. But if you're saying, I've been put on the shelf because of some past mistake or flaw or failure in my life and I can't be used by God, I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter 11 and verses 3 through 8. Because what it says there in Nehemiah 11, 3 and following is, now these are the heads of the providences who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's service. And some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, 
And the list continues to verse 6 where it says, All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 able men. Now these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshalam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, and more names are mentioned, telling us the total here was 928 people. Now, in this hard-to-pronounce list of names, if you read through it, what you'll find is there are two lines that are mentioned. Two lines. You're going to find that it talks about Judah, and it talks about Benjamin. And when it comes to the line of Judah, you'll notice the name Perez is highlighted. It's mentioned uh, in verse 4 and again in verse 6. And the background to this man named Perez is found in Genesis chapter 38. And if you go through and you read the story of Perez, what you find is it reads like a soap opera, a torrid soap opera, I'll add. His mother's name is Tamar, and Tamar is married to Er, E-R, Er, however you want to say it. Uh, it was Judah's firstborn. Now, what the Bible tells us about Er is that he was an evil and wicked man, and God took his life in judgment. Now, Tamar was left childless, and in the Old Testament, there was something called the, Leverite, the law of the Leverite marriage. And what that meant is if a man died and he did not have an heir and there was an unmarried brother, the brother was to marry the widow. So, guys, if the Leverite law were in place for us today, you'd have a lot of say in who your brother married because she might become your wife one day. And so Er has died, and this guy named Onan now marries Tamar. And he was supposed to, the reason a brother would marry the widow is the firstborn son that he had would then be the descendant of the previous brother who had died, so the line would not be wiped out. So Onan marries Tamar, and he's supposed to have a child to carry on his brother's line. Now, what would happen is if there was not, you know, a continuation of the line, then this guy would get the firstborn inheritance, which means he'd get a double portion. So Onan, being selfish, said, I don't want to raise up an heir for my dead brother. I want to get the double inheritance for myself. So the scriptures tell us he wasted his seed on the ground rather than get Tamar pregnant. Now, God took his life in judgment as well. Are you with me so far? So Judah, who's the father, now has two dead boys to Tamar. And he has a third son. And he's afraid if his third son marries Tamar, that he's also going to die. So he withholds the third son. And he gives all these excuses. He's too young. There's on and on. And after a while, Tamar figures out what's going on, that Judah has no intention of ever allowing this third son to marry her. So she takes matters into her own hands. And one day, she's standing by the side of the road where she knows that Judah travels back and forth, and she's disguised herself as a prostitute. And along comes Judah, and he sees her. He turns aside, uh, and he has relations with her. Now, he didn't have anything with him to pay for her services, so he gives her his seal as a pledge saying, hey, I'm going to send a servant with an animal for you, and he'll make the account, he'll settle the account. So Judah goes home, he sends his servant back with the animal. Uh, Tamar disappears. So the servant gets there, comes back, says, hey, Judah, there was no lady there. Uh, she's gone, she has your stuff. He says, look, just forget it. She can keep it. We don't want a scandal, just forget about it. Well, fast forward a little bit of time, Tamar turns up pregnant. And Judah says, oh, this is great. Because she has been betrothed to his son, she's committed adultery. So he can have her stoned and kill her. 
So he brings her out, Judah appearing all righteous, says, uh, hey, you've committed adultery, you deserve to die. And Tamar says, well, Judah, before you kill me, here's the father, let me show you his stuff. And she presents his seal. And he goes, oh, I'm the daddy. And then the scriptures tell us, he said, she's more righteous than anybody else in our family. Now that's saying a whole lot for the family, isn't it? Right? (laughs) So that's the line of Perez. That's the background to Perez. Now, what about Benjamin, this other line? Well, if you read about Benjamin, they're one of the tribes in Israel, and you go to Judges chapter 19, and you see there's this horrendous sin that takes place. There's a gang rape of a lady. She's killed. The other tribes come and say, we need to punish the people who are responsible for this. Tribe Benjamin says, you're not going to touch our guys. Civil war breaks out. And the the tribe of Benjamin is being decimated. And when the war is finally stopped, there are just 600 men left in the entire tribe of Benjamin. Now, as you're looking here in Nehemiah, what we see is God allowed them to multiply again because now there are 928 men who are part of the repopulation of Jerusalem. And that's just a tenth of it. And so what God has done is he's, he's allowed the line of Benjamin to continue. He kept it from extinction. And as you read through the history of Israel, what you find are there are two very prominent people who came up out of Benjamin that were named Saul. One was Saul, the first king of the nation. And the other guy was, a name, was named Saul of Tarsus, who later became renamed the apostle Paul. And so Paul, as you know, started out as the chief enemy of Christianity. He was responsible for the deaths of believers. He was trying to wipe out the church. He was on the way to Damascus to kill Christians. And the resurrected Lord appeared to Paul in a blinding light, knocked him off his high horse literally. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? And he found this was the resurrected Lord. Paul becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul grows in his faith. Uh, Saul's name is changed to Paul. He becomes one of the apostles. He says, as one untimely born to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Lord, which he did in this vision. God used Paul not only mightily in the first century to minister to Christians, but do you realize that God is still ministering to you and I today through the apostle Paul? Because Paul was used under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to write many of the New Testament books which we are studying. When we get to January, we're going to start a new series in the book of Galatians, which is one of the books that Paul wrote. And so this, this is the background of, of what we're looking at today. And if God could take people like this that he set aside for special mention, out of all this, these are two people of special mention, and if God can redeem and use people like this, what do you think God can do with you and me today? If you're sitting here this morning saying, my life is a train wreck and God wants nothing to do with me, you are wrong. Romans 5, 8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And as you think of Jesus Christ coming to die for us, go to Matthew chapter 1 and read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is and was God. He took on flesh and blood, but he became a physical human. 
through a miraculous conception with the Holy Spirit, but there was a physical mother named Mary. And in Matthew chapter 1, we see the lineage of Mary. And as you read the list of Mary, do you know what you'll find? It is filled with broken and flawed people. Matthew 1 verse 3 says, And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We just talked about those folks. As you look at Matthew 1.5, it says, And to Solomon was born Boaz by Rahab. If you read through the scriptures, you'll see that many times when you see the name Rahab, it goes on to say Rahab the harlot. Because Rahab was a foreign woman outside of the nation of Israel who was a prostitute. And she placed her faith in the true, one true God, Yahweh. She hid the spies. She became a part of the nation. And then she became a part of the lineage of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. We'll talk more about her son, Boaz, here in a moment. Matthew 1, 6 adds to this line of people who are, who are broken. As it says, And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, why does it say the one who had been the wife of Uriah? Well, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see that there's another torrid story of betrayal because King David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, the story is even more depressing when you come to understand who Uriah was. Uriah was in David's inner circle. He's listed as one of David's mighty men. This was one of his closest friends. This was one of his bodyguards. And David, the king, betrayed his best friend and took his wife. And Bathsheba turns up pregnant. Now, Uriah was out on the battlefield where King David should have been. So Bathsheba comes to the king and says, hey, I'm pregnant. And David's going, we've got a problem. Your husband hasn't been home. He's been deployed for a long time. Anybody can count months. We've got to get him home. So they bring Uriah back. David says, tell me how the battle's going. Oh, now go home and, you know, enjoy the pleasures of your wife and your home for a few days. Uriah, being such an integrity, a guy with integrity, says, I can't do this while the ark of the Lord is in the field and the other army is there. So he sleeps in the doorway of his house. People come and report to David, your plan's not working. They bring him back. They get him drunk. Well, even drunk, he's got more integrity than the king. And so plan fails. David's panicked. He's like, we got to hide this sin. So he sends back his letter of execution by his own hand. Uriah was such an outstanding guy. He wouldn't even, David knew he wouldn't even peek at the paper that says, hey, put Uriah at the front of the battle, withdraw and let him get killed. So he murders this guy. So you've got adultery and murder. David then marries Bathsheba after a little time of mourning uh, wink, wink, she's pregnant. Oh, people are like, wow, that baby's really premature, uh, you know. And the baby's born and he dies because God protected this child from all the things that would come with everybody knowing the sin. David confesses his sin. God is a God of redemption and forgiveness. And he in turn uses David and Bathsheba to be in the line of the Messiah. Friends, there is nothing that God's grace cannot cover in your own life. As you're reading genealogies like this, you can write the word grace. Grace across the list. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
The only thing that can keep you from being used by God is if you will not come to God's son, Jesus, to be your savior and to be welcomed into the family and then say to God, here I am, God, use me. Now, it may be that you're sitting here this morning thinking, Roger, you know, I've made mistakes in my life, but I guess I haven't been bad enough to be used by God (laughs) because my life isn't as bad as some of the things you've mentioned. Well, here's the good news for you. Uh, God, you can use people who haven't made a complete train wreck of their life either. Because as you go back and you look at Matthew chapter 1, there are guys like Boaz in Matthew 1.5. And if you read the book of Ruth, you find this was a fine, outstanding, godly guy who lived his life helping others, treating his servants well. He married the widow uh, Ruth, who was this foreign Canaanite woman. There, there are others that are listed, like in Matthew 1.12, where we read there, and the deportation to Babylon to Babylon to Jeconi was born Sheatil and to Sheatil Zerubbabel. Now, why are those names familiar? Well, as you look at Nehemiah 12.1, we find these names mentioned because Nehemiah 12.1 says, Now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Jeshua. Zerubbabel was the guy who was the leader of the first group who returned in 538 B.C. to rebuild the temple. And along with him, we find the name of Jeshua, who's mentioned in Nehemiah 12.8 as the leader of the Levites. And in verse 10, his name heads up the list of all the priests and the Levites that goes all the way through verse 26. So what we find in a list of names like this are people with both good and bad backgrounds. And God uses all of them because they made themselves available to God. And because of that, in subsequent generations, they stood on the legacy of the past like this list of names we're reading in Nehemiah. And it has application to us today because we're standing on the shoulders of these men and women of faith from thousands of years ago. And we're standing on the shoulders of of men and women of faith in our day. Wayside Chapel was started 60 years ago. Wayside Chapel was started by a handful of men and women in a little building at Wayside and Vance Jackson. That's why we're called Wayside Chapel. We started on Wayside Street in a little chapel. Sixty years ago, there was a group of men and women who left their comfort zone, who said we're willing to step out in faith and start this church. And it has become the church that we're a part of today. And if Jesus Christ tarries and does not return in our lifetime, there will be generations possibly that will be standing on the shoulders of faithful men and women like you today that are sitting here who are a part of Wayside Chapel. And so as we look at a list like this, this is what it ties us to. This is our legacy. Not just 60 years ago, not just thousands of years ago to the time of Nehemiah, but it's tied to people that we find in Hebrews chapter 13. There you'll find another list of faithful followers. And it says in Hebrews 13:7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. It says, remember these people. Remember what they taught you, what they did. Imitate their faith. And that's why a list of names like the ones we've been looking at today in chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah are important because it gives us a legacy of godly followers of God that we can follow. 
it reminds us that we are not alone. It reminds us that we are a part of a faithful group of servants. And it reminds us today that we need to be those faithful servants who continue. As I said earlier, the only thing that will keep you from being used by God is an unwillingness to first come to faith in Jesus Christ and then second to say to God, here am I, God, use me. So as I bring this part of the message to a close, I want you to ask yourself, are you willing to be used by God? If you're still thinking that God can't use someone like you, I want you to listen to this last list of names of men and women in the Bible who were used by God in spite of their past and the problems they had. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer, and Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused. Moses had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair and was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah cried all the time. (laughs) David had an affair and was a murderer. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Martha was worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced multiple times. Zacchaeus was too small. Peter denied Christ. Paul was too religious. And Timothy was too young. There's nothing in your past or mine that can keep us from being used used by God if we're willing to give our life to him and be used by him today. So as we come to the communion table now, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your past. I want you to think about what it is that you think keeps you from being able to be used by God. Because what we're reminded of coming to the communion table today is that God has canceled the debt. God has wiped the ledger clean. God has paid the penalty in full for your sins and mine. Whatever it is that we have done in the past, we can write grace over. We can write paid in full for the penalty of sin over. In a moment as the elements are passed, there are going to be two cups. As the tray comes by, I want you to reach and make sure you take the two cups that are stacked on top of each other. Because the bottom one contains a piece of bread. And the top one contains the juice that represents the blood of Jesus. And what these two elements point us to is what Jesus Christ did for us. How he came and he took on flesh and blood so that he could be the payment for our sins. We're coming into the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. This little baby born in Bethlehem. And I want to remind you that he came to be the baby of Bethlehem to ultimately be the Christ of Calvary. The one who would die on a cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We owe a penalty of death for our sins, and what the word sin means is to miss the mark. It means we've been disobedient. We failed at some point in our life to follow God and his word. And all of us have done that. Romans 3.23 says, For all, every single one of us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means his standard was perfection. 
And the only one who has ever lived a perfect life walking this earth is the God-man, Jesus Christ. God took on flesh and blood so that he could ultimately take on our sins, sacrificing himself on the cross, dying to pay the penalty of death for your sins and mine. And so if you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus as your Savior, I invite you today to do so. As the elements are passed in a moment, to say to God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I have a need in my life for what you did to save me. And I accept your gift today in my place and to take the elements representing his body and blood and to say to Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I thank you that you died to pay the penalty of death for my sins. Today I receive you as my Savior. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that's what that means. And for the rest of us who have already accepted Jesus as our Savior, this is a time to also look at our lives and be reminded first of God's grace. And second, if we have any unconfessed sin, to say, God, I'm sorry, and to confess that sin. Remember 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So use this time now to talk to God. If you need to come to faith, if you need to accept his great gift to you, then take and hold the elements and tell him today, God, I'm becoming a part of your family. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And you can become a son or a daughter of his this morning. And for the rest of us, this is a time to thank him and just to remember what he's given to us. So take and hold the elements and I'll lead us in a moment. Will you serve us, please? This is the time of the year where we think about Christ at Christmas. You'll see mangers all around town. You'll hear the songs that we sing about joy to the world. The Lord has come, O little town of Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread, house of bread. And one of the names that Jesus has in the Bible is the bread of life. We hold in our hand this morning a little piece of bread. And it represents something so much more, so big. Because it points us to God coming to be among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Who he left his throne in heaven to come to earth. To take on flesh and blood to walk among us. The reason God took on flesh and blood is because there had to be a sacrifice made to pay the penalty of sin. And the only one who could make that payment is the one who did not owe it the one who had never sinned, the one who was perfect, and that was God. As Jesus was coming, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect sacrifice that could be offered, who would remove the penalty of death that was owed. And so here in our hand we hold a reminder of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who took away our sin, eat it in remembrance of him. And here we have a cup of juice. But what it represents is the precious blood of the lamb, the blood that was shed. And the reason Jesus shed his blood is because the book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. There had to be blood shed. 
There were thousands and millions even, hundreds of millions of offerings potentially over the years that had been made in the temples in various ways, but not a single one of them ever removed the penalty of sin. In fact, Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats and rams and the sacrifices could not do that. But there could be a perfect and permanent sacrifice, which is why John said of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as Jesus died on the cross, he said in John 19.30, it is finished, literally paid in full. What was paid in full? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. Jesus died to pay the penalty of death for you and me. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. Join me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. The one who willingly came to give his life, to give to us the gift of eternal life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for leaving your throne in heaven to come to earth. Trading your crown of glory for a crown made of thorns. To be willing to suffer and die to be the savior of the world, to be the personal savior of each and every one of us who have received you. We thank you, God, for that gift of grace. We thank you, Lord, for making us a part of your family. And we thank you, God, that you've given us the opportunity to be messengers of peace and grace. So as we go into the world, would you help us to share the good news of the gospel? Would we be able to share the good news that the Messiah has come? And salvation is available to all who will receive that great gift, the greatest gift of Christmas that could ever be received. So, Lord, use us. Send us out now for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.